Well, um, my name's, um, yeah, Michael. I'm the executive pastor here <laughs> at All Nations, and uh, it's just awesome to come and, and uh, serve you guys and preach God's word. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, we are continuing in a series uh, through the first chapters of Genesis. And uh, we, we've worked our way through creation and the creation of man and the fall and the first murder with Cain and, uh, and Abel. And uh, here we are in Genesis chapter 6, and we're looking at the, the account of Noah and the flood. And this account actually spans from chapter 6 to chapter 9. So we're actually splitting uh, this kind of story, this narrative, into two sermons as well. So today we're only going to be looking at chapter 6 to 7. Um, so we're just going to dive right into it. Uh, if you have your Bibles, let's please turn to Genesis chapter 6. Uh, we'll be reading from verse 5 to 18. And if you don't have them, uh, they will go up on the screen as well. I'll give you guys a moment to turn there. All right. Well, may God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. We'll jump down to verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Please turn to Genesis chapter seven, verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth, 150 days. Amen. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, we looked at the fall of humanity from the Garden of Eden. And last week, we looked at the murder of Abel at the hands of his own brother, Cain. 
And ever since Adam and Eve fell from that garden, when they ate of that fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, things have gotten progressively worse. And what we see here in Genesis 6 are the full-blown effects of the fall. And these effects, this corruption, the destruction, this wickedness has incited the judgment, the anger, and the wrath of a holy God. Now, I believe that growing up, many of us have heard the story of Noah, whether it was at a vacation Bible school or Sunday school or some Bible camp, whatever it might be. But I actually lament the fact that I think most of us heard the story and were taught the story of Noah and the flood with Noah being the main character. And we were probably taught some kind of moralistic, cautionary tale telling us, don't be wicked like the world. If you're corrupt like the world, well, what's going to happen is you're going to drown. The flood's going to come and you're going to be destroyed. Don't be wicked like the world. Instead, be righteous like Noah. We want to be righteous like Noah. That's the command. Noah was blameless. Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Noah walked with God. And so that tends to be the lesson. Be like Noah. Be like Noah. Well, if that's true for us, only one person here is going to make it, right? Only one person here would make it. But that's not actually the the main point of the passage. Noah is not the main character of the flood narrative. God is. In fact, if you read Genesis 6 to 9, Noah doesn't even have any lines. Noah has no spoken words in this entire flood account. Zero. And all of this accentuates the fact that the flood is not primarily about Noah. It's primarily about God. And it's not just God and his kindness and God and his grace, God and his favor. It's actually about God and his judgment of sin. God in his plan to redeem the world. God in his plan to renew a world that was already so fallen, so corrupt, and so depraved. It's not about us being like Noah so we can survive the floods of life. Have you heard that before? I've heard that. The floods are going to come, guys, and we got to be like Noah so we don't swink. Sink. (laughs) Swink. I was thinking sink and swim, so swink. Great joke. Awesome. Imagine if I manuscripted it in. That, was, that, was, that would have been pretty fancy. Um, well, we're going to look at three things. Uh, but before we actually get into the text, um, there's a problem that we face then. Okay, so if it's not about Noah and us trying to be good and righteous, and it's about God and his divine judgments, well, we struggle with that. We will struggle emotionally, philosophically, intellectually, with this idea that, that God judges and that God brings a decisive judgment upon a fallen world. Whether you are Christian or not, the idea of God calling and invoking a global flood that brings massive death and destruction, that doesn't sit well with us. It doesn't sit well with our hearts, our conscience, our, our love for our neighbor, our concern for humanity. Eradicating all of humanity and sparing just one family. One family of eight doesn't come off as the work of a loving and a good and a compassionate God. And so uh, before we kind of like unpack the verses and the main concepts of the text, I actually want to address this struggle. What do we make of of this holy and, and wrathful and 
and, and God who, who brings divine judgment, a God who would flood the earth and destroy all of life, sparing only eight people and two by two animals. So we have three points today. The first is, I wanna talk about our agony, agony over divine judgment. Our agony over divine judgment. Second, we're gonna look at the arousal of divine judgment. How have we incited God and his judgment? Thirdly, we're gonna talk about the accomplishment of God's judgment. The accomplishment. So I tried to make all A's. Maybe they'll help you remember, maybe not. So it's the agony, the arousal, and the accomplishment, all of divine judgment. Well, in a, 2000, in a 2014 Huffington Post article, by the way, don't get all your news from Huffington Post. It's, it's not great. Uh, but I was just reading this and, and looking, looking a couple things up. And there was an article responding to the movie that came out uh, about Noah and the flood. And it was like a major motion picture. I'm like forgetting the guy's name. Thank you, Russell Crowe, the gladiator. The gladiator was serving as Noah. And, and don't go watch this movie because the, the director himself kind of joked that it's probably the most biblically inaccurate movie about a Bible story that's ever been made, right? Uh, but but uh, this one author just wanted to kind of talk about uh, the story of Noah and the idea of Noah. And he's, you know, he's an admitted atheist. And he accused God, the God of the Bible, of being genocidal. He's like, what kind of God do Christians worship. And he seems like a genocidal God. And he lamented the idea that God would destroy humanity for destroying one another, right? And so God looks down from heaven and he sees men destroying one another, families, peoples, tribes, destroying one another. And God's solution is, I'm going to destroy all of you guys. And he was just like, that just seems like a terrible solution to this problem. Another writer that I read uh, accused God of actually being worse than Hitler. Hitler who sanctioned the murder of millions of Jews, gypsies, disabled people. And he said, if, if the flood really occurred, how can God be good? I mean, it makes, it makes that tragedy in Europe pale in comparison to what God did in the flood. How can God be trusted and loved if God truly wiped out Every man, woman, and child, with the exception of eight people. This is real. I mean, there's, 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 there's a struggle that even Christians who believe in the Bible, and we believe it as God's holy, inerrant, infallible, inspired word, we still have to come to grips with that. Well, reflecting on this very issue, uh, Tim Keller, he's a pastor and author, leads a church called Redeemer Presbyterian in New York. He he was reflecting on this and he shared some very important observations that I wanna share with you guys today. And the first thing that he shares is that we may, as Christians, face a problem if we believe in divine judgment, okay? That is true, we do face a dilemma. But he says, there's a bigger problem if we don't. There's a bigger problem for us, there's a bigger problem for humanity if we do not acknowledge, if we do not believe in divine justice and divine judgment. What does he mean by this? He means that if we reject divine judgment, then violence, all the violence we see in our lives, in our communities, in our nations, in the world, all the violence that we see as we look back on human history, all of that violence wins. There is no answer to that violence. There is no justice 
to that violence. Violence wins if there's no such thing as divine judgment. That's the first thing he kind of cautions us to consider. Second, he says, we have no intellectual defense against the naturalness of violence, okay? If we want to reject and turn our eyes away from divine judgment, then we actually don't have an intellectual defense against the naturalness of violence. This is what he means. Nature is violent. Just watch the animal planet, right? Just watch Shark Week as it comes up. It is violent. The big fish devour the little fish, okay? The strong animals devour the weak animals. And we accept this natural violence as the circle of life, don't we? I mean, even our kids learn about it in The Lion King, the circle of life, right? And so we understand that nature in itself is violent, and we're like, that's just the way it is. But how do we react when we see large nations devour smaller nations? How do we react when we see strong individuals prey upon the weak? whether it's in actual slavery or economic slavery or social slavery, whatever it might be, how do we respond? And we actually don't say that's the way it is. We don't accept that. We complain. We complain and we see that as wrong. We complain and we, 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 we revolt against it and we want justice. We want equity, right? We want something better than the survival of the fittest. We want something greater than the strong win right? A hierarchy of power and privilege just dominating our lives and dominating our culture. We want something greater than that. But here's the question. How can you say that something is crooked unless there's a straight edge somewhere, right? How do we make sense of, okay, we see all the violence in the natural world, but we won't accept the violence in our lives, in our families, in our culture, and in our community. Where does that come from? Well, the Bible tells us that God is that straight edge. God is the standard of justice. God is the standard of truth. And God is the one who has, as he has created us in his image, we know what justice is down in our souls. We know what equity is. And we want that in this world. We want that in our communities and for our families. God is that straight edge. God comes in as the divine judge outside of nature who rejects the naturalness of violence. And then God is the one who gives us reason to do else otherwise. We don't have to accept the strong devouring the weak. We can actually say, no, God's created us for more. God's created us for something greater. But without divine justice, without divine judgment, we have no intellectual defense against the naturalness of violence. Second, uh, Keller, or third, Keller observes that we also have no emotional defense against the poison of violence. So intellectually, we're crippled. Emotionally, we're also crippled as well. When someone violates us, okay, if someone harms you and transgresses against you, have you ever heard you know, someone say, hey, Jesus says, just turn the other cheek walk the extra mile, just forgive, right? And we may say, yeah, that, that, that seems to be what the Bible tells us. We might be told just to, to let it go. Perhaps you've told someone, be the bigger person, as if forgiveness is just an act of the will. Have you guys struggled to do that at times, right? Have you felt that that's just really cheap for someone just to say, just forgive them, even though they robbed you. Just forgive them, even though they shamed you. Just forgive them even though they bang, uh, backstabbed you and bankrupted your entire family. Just forgive them even though 
they murdered your family member. Just forgive them, just forgive them. Well, if you can just forgive them, the odds are it actually wasn't a big, deep transgression. If you can simply forgive someone who has violated you, Keller says, then that actually means your treasures haven't been touched. Okay, simple example. If you come and eat with me and you want to eat my vegetables, go ahead. Your, my treasures have not been touched. If you want to eat my meat, we'll talk about it. <laughs> right? right? If you can simply forgive by an act of will and a decision you t- make for yourself, your treasures haven't been touched. The offense hasn't really cut deep because when we're deeply offended, when our treasures are violated, our hearts demand justice, don't they? Your soul cries out for justice. And this is what happens. You will either take justice into your own hands with revenge, with spite, with action and vengeance, or you will trust in a God who promises judgment and justice. Miroslav Volv, he's a professor at Yale School of Divinity. He profoundly wrote this. This is what he says. Violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take up the sword. Why do we see violence thriving so much today? Because there is a secret belief that God refuses to take up the sword. And so what that means is if God won't fight for you, if vengeance doesn't belong to God, if God is not going to judge, if God is not going to establish justice, someone has to. And so we do. And so we, we go to war, we fight. We break out in violence and our own brand of vengeance. Don't you see that in our world today? But over and over again in the New and in the Old Testament, God reminds us and he declares to us that vindication is his, vengeance is his, it is his to repay. And that's the key, friends, to true nonviolence. For us to be a people of peace, for us to be a people who love harmony and promote, promote peace in our communities, it's not just simply by being a pacifist, okay? It's not by pure pacifism, it's actually by having faith that God promises judgment. God will wipe every tear from our eyes so vengeance is his, not ours, right? That's so profound, so important for us to consider. So I hope that as we consider the problem of divine judgment, we'd also recognize the greater problem if we reject it. If we reject it, guys, the violence is endless. If we reject it, only the mighty and the powerful win. If we reject it, we actually don't, we aren't able to separate the natural world of violence and our personal world that we want peace, harmony, and justice in. Would you consider the way in which divine judgment actually produces peace in your life? The pathway that God has set for us to actually experience peace in our world. Well, let's move in our text today to our second point, right? Uh, The arousal of divine judgment, the arousal of divine judgment. And by this, I'm simply talking about what have we done? What do we do to incite God's divine judgment? Let's read again, Genesis 6, 5 to 7. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man 
from whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. The wording of verse five and later in verse 12, when, when, when Moses, who's the author of Genesis, talks about God looking down, God seeing, it should actually take us back to creation. The creation account where after every day, God looked upon all that he had made. God looked upon all that he had done. And what does he declare? He says, it was good. It was good. And on the sixth day, he looked at all of creation after making Adam and he declared it was very good. But however, here in chapter six, the conclusion is completely different. What does the Lord see when he looks down on the earth? When God sees humanity, when he sees his creation, what does he declare? And the conclusion is different. He says, no, the wickedness of man is great. And I see every intention of his heart is set only on evil continually. And God's conclusion is that he regretted making man and the animals. Why was God so sorry? Why was God so sorry? Why did he grieve the fact that he made man and even the animals? Because mankind's thoughts, desires, actions, they were all consumed with evil. If you read the previous verses to our story, men were murdering one another. Relationships between husbands and wives were being defiled. The family was dysfunctional. The community was dysfunctional. Mankind was corrupt. And mankind was not only destroying itself, mankind was destroying all of creation. So it, this is why he said it. The, the, the stewardship, the kingship that mankind was supposed to have over the earth, well, that was so corrupt. He was sorry that these animals had to be subjugated to these evil men. I'm sorry I made these animals because they have to live under the evil rule of these men. So he's sorry that he, he made all of these things. Well, I think uh, our families can relate to this to a very small, like lower level, like tiny, tiny level. I hope this isn't offensive. I'm sure that if you've been given the, the, the gift of life with children, parents, if you would just kind of go back and imagine with me that first day, that day when, when your child came into, into this world, you probably looked at that newborn and thought, man, she is so beautiful. Maybe fathers looked at their sons and they said, you know, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You are, you are the better version of me, right? You're perfect. And you looked at them and you said, what a miracle. But did that vantage point change when they hit their terrible twos? Did that feeling, did that sentiment change when, when you have multiple children and they start fighting and bickering with one another? I mean, just going crazy in the backseat of a car or whatever it might be, and all you hear are screams and your name being called out because they're tattletaling on one another. What happens when you see the evil and the sin manifest in your little loved one's hearts? You don't just ignore it. You don't just ignore it out of love you save them from themselves, don't you? Out of love, you discipline them with parental justice, whether it be timeout, or nowadays, I'm gonna take away your iPhone, or a good old-fashioned spanking. Out of love, you save them from themselves with parental justice. You, you may not go as far as God did in regretting having them, or maybe some of you have, <laughs> but when your beloved children act out, 
You discipline them out of love, don't you? And this is the second thing that arouses divine judgment. The first is our corruption, our wickedness, when everything about us wanted evil continually, right? That sin aroused divine judgment. But the second thing that aroused divine judgment is divine love. It's the heart of God. Genesis 6 tells us that the heart of God was grieved. The Hebrew word for this word grieved here also actually means indignant rage. We see this word in this exact like grammatical construction in Genesis 34, 7. I'm sure that no one here remembers off the top of their head what Genesis 34, 7 says. Maybe one person, I'm thinking about her. But um, this is where Jacob's sons heard that their sister Dinah, Jacob's sons heard that their sister Dinah was raped, raped by a man named Shechem. And when her brothers found out that their sister had been raped, they swore vengeance upon Shechem and his family. And they were grieved to their heart. They had indignant rage because their sister was taken advantage of. Their flesh and blood was violated. They were filled with this kind of grief. Church, God's grief over our sin, it is deeply personal and it is deeply intimate. It's not just God in heaven, angry God in the heavens who's super holy and super distant and he's just mad at you for not living a perfect life. No, it's because God is your personal father in heaven. And when he sees your brokenness, his heart breaks. When he sees your rebellion, it is, it's with the most intimate, dear, passionate love that he could possibly have for you. And this should make some sense to us some sense to us. When we hear of tragedy falling to a complete stranger, you know, halfway across the earth or just maybe in another state, I mean, our hearts are saddened. When we hear of, of tragedies of strangers, we, we feel sad, we, we may lament, we may pray, we may grieve, we may even shed a tear, but your soul isn't deeply wounded, is it? I, I know that wasn't the case for me. Even this past week with all of the tragedy going on in our nation, I prayed my heart was broken, but I wasn't personally wounded. But when someone precious to us, truly precious to us is violated, our hearts cry out and we do demand personal judgment, personal justice. And so it is with God who is so intensely grieved over the corruption of his beloved creation. When God saw how fallen his good and beautiful and designed and, and, and beloved creation had become, it grieved him intensely and it awoken and aroused in him divine judgment. Let's move to our final point today. What does God do? What does divine judgment look like? The accomplishment of divine judgment. And we're gonna see this in Genesis 6, verses 17 to 18 and chapter seven, verse 22 to 23. They're gonna go up on the screen. This is what Moses writes. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Verse 22, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left 
and those who are with him in the ark. God's judgment was decisive. God's judgment was absolute. Here we see that when God was destroying everything on the earth through the flood, he was enacting salvation through judgment. And this is gonna be the main idea for the rest, for this last point. It is a salvation through judgment, not judgment without salvation, because if God only judged and didn't save anyone, that's just pure wrath, right? That's just pure anger and retaliation. Or it wasn't, nor was it a salvation apart from judgment. God wasn't just saving without judging because that would actually be cheap grace. That would be a compromise of his holiness and his personal justice. No, we see in this flood account, God is saving through judgment. Let me explain how God accomplishes this. In Genesis, God declared that everything on the earth would die through the flood. He just declares it. He says, I've seen the corruption. It's grieved my heart. I regretted making man and all the animals. I'm going to destroy everything. But in verse 18, there's this wonderful but, right? But as Noah found favor in God's eyes, God established his covenant with him that they would be saved through the ark. And what that means is Noah received grace. That's what grace is, unmerited favor. Like we think as Americans, favor is like, hey, hook me up a little. Like I know a friend at Best Buy who's gonna give me a better deal than everybody else. We think that that's what a favor is. But here in this biblical language, it's not just a little bit of hookup. It's not just a little bit of help. It is unmerited favor. It is grace. See, Noah wasn't sinless. I know Noah is described as, as righteous and blameless, but the author's point is not saying Noah wasn't a man without sin. We actually see Noah messes up like right after the flood. Like right after the flood, Noah starts like uh, planting uh, grapes and he becomes a man of the vineyard. And then he gets drunk, falls asleep naked, uncovered. And uh, there's a sin and, and he has to curse his sons and it goes crazy. So the Bible's very clear that Noah is not without sin. But still, Noah found favor in the eyes of God. God gave Noah grace. So as the rains came down for over 40 days, and as the waters burst forth from the depths of the earth, the whole earth was buried under the waters. And the Bible tells us that everything, everything died. Almost everything. Not everything descended into the depths. There is one thing that rose up from the waters. One thing that rose up and was spared from the depths and it was that ark. As judgment fell upon a corrupted and wicked world, God was raising up, saving Noah and his family, saving the rest of the animals of creation two by two. He was saving them for a fresh start and a second chance at life. See, many may think of the flood as an act of just destruction maybe an act of evil, but, but in reality, God was blotting out and cleansing, blotting out and cleansing the world of evil through the flood. So see this, the flood was not just this pure act of evil and destruction. No, God, the flood was God's way of cleansing the world from evil. He was saving the world from being destroyed at the hands of sinful men. See, this is how God was saving the world from us, sinful men. He saw us stewarding over it in all the wrong ways. He saw us destroying one another and destroying the world. And, and God said, I love the world too much. 
I love mankind too much to let men destroy this. I need to cleanse. I need to cleanse the earth through the flood. And so God says, I'm going to blot it out. He uses this key word, I'm going to blot out all of life from the earth. The interesting thing is King David used the exact same word in Psalm 51 when he was talking about his own sin. After he had transgressed against God, transgressed against uh, one of his men, Uriah, and he had slept with Bathsheba, a woman who was not his wife and had his friend and had his soldier murdered, David writes Psalm 51, and this is what David prays. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. You see, here we see the Lord of the flood accomplishing not only divine judgment, but divine salvation. Not only divine judgment, but divine salvation. God's purpose was not merely to blot out every living thing, but God's purpose through the flood was to point us to Christ, whose blood shed for us blots out our iniquities. That's what David was praying for. That's what the flood is pointing toward, the blotting out, the cleansing of all of our sin, all of our corruption, all of our iniquities. In church, this is the gospel, that God accomplishes salvation through divine judgment. You see it here in the flood. You will see it again when God judges the people at the Tower of Babel. You'll see it continued in, in Sodom and Gomorrah, that that place that is so depraved and so fallen, God spares, God spares Lot and his family. There is salvation through judgment. And ultimately we see this pathway of salvation through judgment at the cross where the father laid the fullness of his wrath and judgment upon his son, Jesus Christ, so that we might be saved. Friends, the gospel is not simply God loves you and has an amazing plan for your life. Friends, that's not, that's not the entirety of the gospel. The gospel isn't even merely, oh, God just wants to give you favor and grace. That's actually just part of the gospel as well. No, the gospel is salvation through judgment. Judgment that we have been spared from because the father laid all of his judgment upon the son as our substitute. This is what Isaiah writes as he was hoping in the coming Messiah as he understood the holiness of God and the corruption of man, there was only one person, one savior who could stand in the gap and reconcile us with our holy God. Isaiah describes this savior in this way. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Church, this is the gospel. Would you take a moment? Would you consider would you consider your own sin? Would you consider your own corruption? And would you acknowledge that we deserve not to be spared from the flood, we deserve to perish in the flood. We deserve that.
So many of us want to be like Noah. So many of us want to be spared from the ark. Well, the gospel gives you an opportunity to experience that kind of salvation. Not because you walk with God so perfectly, blamelessly, and righteously. Righteously. No, because Jesus Christ is the greater Noah. Jesus Christ is the one who has saved us. Jesus invites us into the ark to receive true and complete salvation. Jesus wants to blot out your iniquities today. Would you consider him? Would you trust in him? Would you receive him? Let's pray together. Lord, we, we want to pause before you and acknowledge our iniquity. And we want to confess that we all deserve the flood, that our hearts have been set on evil and corruption, and that even on our best and most earnest moments, we fall short of your glory. But we thank you, God, that you do not leave us to drown in our own sin. We thank you, God, that you do not leave us enslaved to our own passions and worldliness. We thank you that you have sent Jesus Christ, the greater Noah, that you have sent Jesus Christ, the one who has borne our transgressions upon himself. Lord, I pray that right now, you would produce in us faith in Christ. You would produce in us a true desire to be saved, not by our own performance, but saved by the perfect work, the complete work of Jesus, who died on the cross, who was raised on the third day and secures safety and new life for all who trust in his matchless name. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray.